Hello and welcome back to a new episode of the Dew Point Report, the digital electronic world point report where we focus on the duality of our existence in the electronic world that we exist in, which balances, of course, with our tactile existence in an ever-changing world. And what that means. Now, recently, there was an approval by the FDA of emergency use authorization for clinical trials for a new Alzheimer's drug. Why this is important to be discussed is this isn't the first time that drug companies have begun researching new methodologies for trying to solve this disease that is Alzheimer's. Why do I say this disease? Well, it is a disease that is so common to many, yet so uncommonly unfamiliar, particularly to the people that are suffering from it, because they do not recognize that it's actually occurring to them. It is a disease that, as it is progressively regressive, It continuously dismantles the brain in such a way that it disconnects disconnects the synapses that connect the neurons, which are the important portions of the brain that are the liveliness, that are the superhighway of the brain. There are billions of synapses in the brain. Hard to imagine, yes, I know, but... It is true. And so it is familiar to many in the world because one in six women, for example, suffer from Alzheimer's. It is a type of dementia that is, in the form of memory loss, so familiar yet unfamiliar. Now, why do I say particularly affecting women? For men, it might be in the form of more something called Lewy body dementia. Not just that, though. Dementia, of course, has its form in many different manifestations. There are dementias that people recover from, such as if people have not slept for years in a reasonable amount of hours that are required or needed by the brain to properly recuperate from the day's exhaustion. For example, if a person sleeps two hours repetitively day after day for a series of five years, the brain goes through a series of exhaustive measures, and it really doesn't catch up the way it should in trying to recuperate itself. Now, I'm generalizing the way that I'm describing it. It's much more detailed, one would need to know in order to understand how the brain truly starts to break down. But if someone suddenly began to sleep 12 hours every day, you still wouldn't catch up all those hours that you've lost, but you would begin to. You just wouldn't overnight have all of that necessary sleep made up. So let me specify. If you, for a week, Let's say you were sleeping regularly eight hours and you all of a sudden for a week slept minus three hours every day in that week. If you tried to make up some of those hours but didn't make up all of them, 
It doesn't mean that your brain would suddenly be extremely happy because you still have some hours to make up, you see. The brain knows when it's still short some hours. It's kind of like a time card. The hours have to add up to 40 if you know that you were supposed to have worked 40 hours and you didn't work 40 hours and you only put 35, then they add up to 35. The hours add up. And so if you're short the five hours, you're short the five hours. Your brain knows how many hours you're short. And somehow as you short your brain, five hours here, five hours there, five hours another, Three times five hours short is 15 hours. And so the brain eventually realizes it's not going to get those five hours back. And that level of exhaustion adds up. And so why am I making this point? And why is it so relevant? Well, the concern amongst scientists, and particularly doctors who help patients with Alzheimer's, is the following. This particular clinical trial, which is going to look into a particular medicine that has gotten the emergency use authorization, does not have the levels of efficacy that, say for example, the vaccines did that were given the emergency use authorization for the coronavirus vaccine. And so it would have made sense, which it did, when those vaccines were given EUA because there was an extremely elevated level of efficacy. Because this particular new medication, which is going to be part of the clinical trials to see if they can somehow look into the depths of solving Alzheimer's, but they know they won't solve it, but they know they can at least improve conditions for patients who have it. The challenge is, if it isn't as efficacious as the vaccines were, then they know that they already are not going to get the level of results. And so the sad part is they know that they're going to lose a certain percentage of patients that enter the clinical trials. So why would they give emergency use authorization? It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem fair on the one. And on the two, is it that they know that the patients may already be at a certain degree of disease progression that the patients have already given up? And if so, is that fair? It doesn't seem fair. Why would they allow patients to enter a clinical trial if they're already so ill? Questions are important to pose. Why would they? Now, the emergency use authorization is not used frequently, if at all, if hardly, if ever. It was used the way it was with the coronavirus vaccines because of the global level of emergency and the response was truly necessary in the way that it was given and it's noticeable how quickly everything was 
manufactured once it was deemed that the clinical trials were effective and the vaccines were producible at a scalable rate. In the next segment, we'll be discussing what in 2010 had been a promising test that showed Alzheimer's through a scan. And I'll pose the question afterward, what happened to that test? How is it that sometimes people can find such a promising methodology and they put so much money into said research and then when the money is gone, so is the research. Let's not let this happen to other diseases just because the money isn't there. And because of what we'll discuss in the next segment, because in 2010 such promising research was already said to have been discovered, why 11 years later are we still at a point where there has been not even closer to a cure to such a devastating disease? Why, when arriving at the point of what the vaccines were able to accomplish, which was so promising and absolutely fruitful, was able to be accomplished in such astronomical re resulting immediacy? We'll discuss that after the break. Thanks for listening here at the Dewpoint Report with your host, Margarita. And welcome back to the Dewpoint Report and another segment which focuses in this episode to how it seems that solving Alzheimer's is seemingly more complex than most diseases. Well, I mentioned in the previous segment that I would be talking about how in 2010 there was a most promising test that was looking at the potentiality of new tests, exams, that could look through a CT scan, a brain scan, at the levels of Alzheimer's disease in the brain. And so rather than describing it, I thought, well, why don't I just read the article to you and you could decide for yourself. And then I'll explain a little bit more why I think this is actually intriguing to look at something that was written in 2010 and putting that in context to 2021, now that here we are 11 years later, really looking at have we really progressed in the area of Alzheimer's research? And pray tell how many dear lives have we lost to this most devastating disease? It is challenging. Now, I know there are many devastating diseases out there, and each one has its own unique circumstance and situation, but Alzheimer's is in and of itself one most unusual and precarious disease because it ravages the mind in a most peculiar way. So let me read the article. It is from the San Diego Union Tribune, Thursday, 
June 24, 2010. The title is Doctor Says His Test Can Show Alzheimer's. Dye and Brain Scan Can Detect Plaque. Written by Gina Colada of the New York Times News Service. Dr. Daniel Skowronski says his Philadelphia startup company, Avid Radio Pharmaceuticals, has found a dye and a brain scan that can show the hallmark plaque building up in the brains of people with Alzheimer's disease. The findings which will be presented at an international meeting of the Alzheimer's Association in Honolulu on July 11, must still be confirmed and approved by the Food and Drug Administration. But it, if they hold up, it will mean the doctors will have a reliable way to diagnose the presence of Alzheimer's in patients with memory problems. And researchers would have a way to figure out whether drugs are slowing or halting the disease, a step that will change everyone's thinking about Alzheimer's in a dramatic way, said Dr. Weiner of the University of California, San Francisco, who is not part of the company's study and directs a federal project to study ways of diagnosing Alzheimer's. Ever since Alzheimer's disease was described by a German doctor, Aloy Alzheimer, in 1906, there was only one way to know for sure that a person had it. A pathologist examining the brain after death would see microscopic black freckles, plaque sticking to brain slices like barnacles without plaque. A person with memory loss did not have the disease. There is no treatment to stop or slow the progress of Alzheimer's, but every major drug company has new experimental drugs it hopes will work, particularly if they are started early. The questions are who should be getting their drug? And who really has Alzheimer's or is developing it early? Even at the best medical centers, doctors often are wrong. 20% of people with dementia, a loss of memory and intellectual functions, who received a diagnosis of Alzheimer's did not have it. There was no plaque when the brains were biopsied. Half with milder memory loss thought to be on their own to on their way to Alzheimer's did not get the disease and with such high rate of misdiagnosis some who are mistakenly told that they have Alzheimer's are not treated for conditions such as depression or low levels of thyroid hormone or drug side effects and interactions that are causing their memory loss Skrovonsky and excuse me if I'm pronouncing it wrong, Skrowonski, 37 years old, and his team developed a dye, D-Y-E, that can get into the brain and stick to plaque. They labeled the dye with commonly used radioactive tracer and used a PET scan to directly see plaque in a living person's brain.
But the technology and the dye itself were so new they had to be rigorously tested and confirmed with hospice patients. One drawback is that the PET scans are expensive. End of article. And so the point to be made here is what progress has been made on this test? A. Was it approved by the Food and Drug Administration? B. If it was approved, how many people have gone through this exam? And C. What are the results? How productive is it? What is the say efficacy at this point of it but you would want to say of the patients that have received the PET scan how many of them have received accurate diagnoses and lastly it has actually been reported that a plaque in the brain can actually create a film in the brain that slows the cognitive processes in the brain. Particularly when people don't follow all the instructions when going through these tests. For example, there are clear instructions that you should really hydrate, to be able to cleanse out all of this dye that gets put into the into the brain. And when people don't follow those instructions, it, the stickiness in the brain stays in there. Um, and so the reports have been that that, that that dye has really the possibility of complicating matters a lot further. Not that that happens all the time, but there is a possibility. And so this is why I say what really has been the effectiveness. And in that instance, efficacy would be appropriate to say as a word. So I'll have to get back to you in terms of if I find any answers to the questions that I've posed at this particular instance. And that ends this segment. Thanks for listening. And welcome back. I wanted to make an additional point in terms of why we invest in what we invest in. It is most interesting that we all have a certain level of philanthropy based on what we have as a passion in life. In this particular episode, I've been discussing how Alzheimer's seems to be a very difficult disease to solve, and it has been over the decades. It didn't just begin yesterday to become a disease, it actually began to be a diagnosis back in 1906. So it has been around for an awful long time. Imagine the amount of people that could have been survived by this disease, who could have survived this disease, excuse me, had this been solved decades ago. But to the point that I'm making, it doesn't mean that everyone has to stop what they're doing or stop their, their philanthropies of choice, but I'm drawing a parallel for this very reason. In the same year as the article that I previously read in 2010, a philanthropist chose to purchase a painting for $33 million, yes, a Monet. 
And when this person purchased the meme, they obviously enjoyed the portrait. It doesn't mean that they didn't have to have purchased it, but it's most interesting. $33 million. If we start to begin to think of what $33 million could do in the world of research, we start to appreciate a little more just how far that goes and how many lives it begins to save. And I don't say that, as I said before, to change the mind of any philanthropist out there. Because we all have our very unique passions on what makes us uh, appreciate something in particular that we want to focus our energies on. And that's important. That is actually what helps succeed every single nonprofit or organization across the country, across the globe. That's important. But let's think for a moment of what helped the success of scaling out the production of COVID-19 vaccinations in such a fastidious manner. It was the fact that not only was there emergency use authorization in such an expeditious manner on the part of the United States Food and Drug Administration by moving forward with the clinical trials for the pharmaceutical companies that had already presented their research in a very orderly manner. But also they were able to scale up production and they were able to bring together the companies that needed to adjust their production models as needed to be able to get production and manufacturing done as appropriate. And then there was so much other that happened that needed to happen throughout the country, be it face mask production, be it logistics necessary for shipping and ordering throughout the country that made a lot of things happen that was in accordance with rules and guidelines on the part of the CDC. So, so much took place in 2020 that one could really discuss for hours, and I won't do that. I won't belabor the point. But why I mention it is when we start to discuss Alzheimer's, it's much more complex than one simple node conversation of a synapse or looking at the calcification of the brain or identifying as I just did one article from 2010 that was 11 years ago. So much research has gone into trying to solve this progressively regressive disease. So having said that, the reason I put in context was that when we begin to have this conversation, we really need to understand it's important to look at as well because the devastation that it does is not uh, just to an appendage of the body. It is to the mind, which is the central force of each of us as humans. And the central force of us as humans is everything we are. And we need to be cognizant of that. And so we need to understand that what holds us together is 
our mind and how we can best keep all of our thoughts connected from the one to the other beyond the stories beyond the this used to be many years ago we need the essentiality of what is most important and so it isn't just about talking about why it's so essential to solve diseases it's actually putting resources towards the people who can solve these diseases and also putting the resources towards educating the people of tomorrow who will be in the positions to solve those diseases because they will have the technological advancements and they will be making the technological advancements to be able to solve the diseases. So perhaps the doctor that had found the dye or had created the dye for the PET scan at that time had the particular technology with his small startup company. But now the technology has advanced such where it is. Has he advanced with his company? One would need to ask that question as well. And so we need to look at all of the scaling forward of technology and be able to support the appropriate technologies which, with where they are and not become single-minded onto one particular thought process thinking that we only need to solve one disease because what really has begun to be part of our framework of conversation everything becomes one conversation these days it's all about covid and though that has become the amalgamation and aggregate of so much because it has been on a global scale we really have to think through our conversation because there are so many other responsibilities we have as global citizens responsible for global problems as well as civic problems as well as physiological problems that do need to continue to be solved in everyday ways and so that concludes this segment as we continue the deepest analysis Of the moment. Thanks for listening here on the Dewpoint Report with your host, Margarita Carrillo.